Hi, you're listening to the Movements Podcast, the podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. I'm Steve Addison, and this is episode 199. Today, we're going to talk to author and sociologist Andrew Johnson about multiplying movements behind bars. a basketball team, a team I was in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I was from. And so I, co- I was coaching a basketball team when I was in high school myself, 16 years old, and the guys were in, they were 10 or 11. And so I got to know this group of young men in the, in the city and knew them through coaching the team and worked with them after. And when they turned about 17 or 18, 19 years old, a number of them started to go into prison. And so it was visiting people that I knew that I cared for kind of opened my eyes to prisons. I'd never thought about it before. Um, I spent some time in Brazil working with kids living on the street and that population uh, really overlapped with the prison population. Um, I did a few other things. And when I went to graduate school, I did a, a doctoral program in sociology. I had heard about these prison churches in Brazil. So I spoke Portuguese and I heard about these churches that were run by the inmates inside of prison. And they had almost become institutionalized in Sao Paulo and Rio and the big cities that every prison had one of these prison churches. And so I was interested in religion, um, interested in Christianity in the global South. And so that's really how I started to um, look more deeply into these, these prison churches in Brazil. Okay. And before then, I think just doing some reading, you actually went to prison. I did. I started the research out uh, by spending two weeks living in prison uh, kind of as an inmate. You know, I wasn't actually an inmate. I could have left at any time, but I slept in the same cells, ate the same food and really uh, did the routine as if I were incarcerated in Brazil. And so I had three cellmates and I was living on a block with 80, 80 people. And it was, uh, it, it was, you know, I really learned a lot by doing that. First of all, I learned, one of the things I learned out is that in Brazil, in prison cultures, visitors are really treated with respect. And so I was frankly nervous when I first got in there. I thought this sounded like a great idea to really get into the research. And then when the day came, I thought, what have I got myself into? Um, so I, I, I checked into the prison and the, and the administrator brought me to the cell block and, and basically said, you know, here's your pillow and blanket. We'll see you in a week. And I thought, what do I do now? And, but I was able to see firsthand what prison looks like. And I can't really, I could never really understand what prisons actually were like, but I got a bit of a taste of it. And I remember I'd been there for, I guess, three or four days. And at that point, I kind of knew the routines of prison. I knew um, what I'd be doing the next day, who I'd be doing it with kind of the routines and the guy on the bunk below me, he snored louder than anyone I've ever met. And it was three o'clock in the morning and the whole, my whole bunk was shaking and I, I was kind of wide awake looking out the, the barred window. And I remember thinking to myself, what, I think he had seven years to go. And I thought, Oh, what if I had seven years left? I had spent four days in here and had another week to go, but what if I had seven years and it was in that moment where kind of the, 
the the heaviness or the 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 tragedy or the despair of prison. Mm-hmm. I understood it in a way that I, I couldn't have understood it by just reading about it or talking to someone. And I understood why when you woke up every morning, you had a cup of coffee and a piece of bread, and the breakfast line is the most kind of depressing part of the day because the whole group was waking up to that reality that here I am. And I had, you know, at that point, I, uh, if I thought of the next seven years, I wanted to finish my dissertation, but I also wanted to get married and had all these hopes and dreams. And I just thought, what if all that was just stopped right like this? And I was stuck in this cell. So that's how I started it out. Um, I spent a couple of weeks living in there and, and uh, yeah, like I said, I, I was treated well. I remember the first day, the kind of the, the, the leader, the inf- for informal formal leader said, "Hey, it's not everyone. We get visitors, but it's not everyone who's going to to live here with us. So you're going to wow. be okay. We're glad you're here." Okay. Was he a gang leader? That uh, he was in he was in there for uh, his second homicide offense, actually. And what happens in prison is in in this particular prison, um, the guards don't go inside the cell blocks, and hmm. so. Um, leaders then arise uh, through, you know, in, in um, among their peers, if you will. And that looks different in different prisons. And so the prison I was at didn't have a gang presence, but the ones in Rio, where I did most of the research for the book, those were completely and totally dominated by the gangs. And so the, the gang, the gang leader in those prisons is the, is the most powerful inmate around there and controls uh, a lot of everyday life in prison. Who sleeps where, controls the drug trade going in and out, dishes out the consequences for breaking rules. Um, and then the other, another uh, person of importance or a leader is the prison pastor as well. So those two positions are very prominent positions yeah, inside. It was in, in Rio. Okay. I remember the first time I went into the jail that I'd spend a lot of time in over the next year. I simply couldn't believe how many people were in there. There were cells that were built for 15 people and there were 80 people crammed in there. Even at 15, it'd be crowded, but there were 80. Mm -hmm. And so what happens at night when everyone's locked in, they sleep head to toe on a single concrete mattress and then head to toe on the floors. And there's still not enough room. So some people will sleep standing up. They'll tie the shirt around themselves to the bar and try to sleep standing up. And there's hammocks that go everywhere. And so it is a, uh, the, the, the conditions are shocking when you first, when you first get in. And I remember walking into that situation and I thought to myself, I would make a great hostage. If they want to, if they want to get attention, let's get this guy. He's not going to fight back and the news will definitely pick up on it. But then what I also saw is that when I'd walk in with pastors, there was uh, different church groups would visit almost every day. Um, but what would happen in these places is that someone would yell, the church is coming down. And all of a sudden, the, the radio that played all day would be turned down. Men would put their shirts on. Even the ones who weren't part of the church or had no plans of participating in the service, they would put their shirts on. They'd stop smoking. They'd stop smoking drugs. They'd turn off the tattoo gun that was running in the corner. And during those moments, uh, all of a sudden this kind of, you know, jam packed, filthy cell block on the outskirts of Rio became kind of a sacred space. And then the church gathered around and the other men, like I said, who weren't participating 
would go into their cells and would uh, treat that area with reverence. And so uh, they're very violent, violent places, and the, the gang warfare tends to uh, bring out these extreme cases of violence where messages want to be sent throughout the country with decapitations and things that mm. um, you can hardly imagine. But these these are done in spaces where the state or the guards or the correctional officers have almost zero presence inside of prison. Mm. And the jail that I was at, the correctional officers, they wouldn't go behind the cell block for anything. They would be scared mm. to death. Yeah. Yet the church would come in and they were treated with, you know, really respect. And I saw pastors bringing in their you know, teenage daughters along with them to sing and to preach. And I remember initially thinking, wow, here this guy is bringing his daughter in with 400 mm. you know, criminals and there's no one to protect them. But then after going there day after day, I realized that these are the risk for people, for visitors coming in is very low, that the prison code says we treat these people with respect. Mm. Well, we'll return to the prisons, but just reading the book and, and watching the film, the documentary, um, you said it in the, the prisons in the context of the favelas, mm-hmm. that, that they're sort of interwoven with one another. So let's step outside the prison. What's life like in the favela? Well, there's in Rio de Janeiro. There's really there's there's almost two Rio de Janeiro's. Um, there is one that you see in the uh, in the brochures for the Olympics and the beach, and it's a beautiful slice of the city. It's you know kind of a five percent a little beach chunk, and it's a beautiful place. The mountains going up, but just behind that is a whole different world. And the prisons are made up exclusively of people from that other side of of Rio, from the uh, poor, marginalized places. In fact, the prisons really kind of reflect Brazilian or Brazilian society or Rio, Rio's culture in kind of a unique way. First is that almost exclusively poor people are in the prisons. Um, for example, if you, if you have a college degree, you don't go into those prisons. You go into a different place. And so you have a job with the state. If you have a fire work for the fire department or police department, for example, you go to a different prison that looks nothing like that. And so if you have any finger in the middle class, you're not going to those places. So when you get to the cell blocks, you have a uh, kind of a slice of the poorest part of Rio. And there's a couple of things you see. One is that I can speak from the U.S. example. We have very kind of either or racial classifications, black, white, Latino, Mm -hmm. But in, in Brazil, it, it's it's a little different. There is kind of a, a, a shades of uh, Co- coffee colored. I, yeah. I, uh, in, in Venezuela, they'd say some. We have white coffee, we have black coffee, and we have coffee with cream. <laughs> yes, and what you see in the in the cells in Rio is that you have darker skin color, and then the rest of the city. Okay, and so um, that's. What's mostly true in Brazil is the poor the neighbor in Rio, the poor the neighborhood, the darker the skin color. Mm-hmm. And you walk into the cell blocks and you see that very, uh, very quickly as well. And then you also see um, a reflection of some of the religious uh, realities in Brazil. So Brazil is the biggest Catholic country on earth. It's also mm-hmm. one of the largest Pentecostal countries. But the Catholic Church really is strongest in the middle and upper classes. And when you go into the favelas and the poor neighborhoods, all of a sudden these are largely Pentecostal places. And that Pentecostalism is by far the 
the the most practiced faith in the favelas of Rio, and even and much more so in prison. Mm. Also, you see the gangs that run the favelas, their power, and they run the favelas. And so, when I visit families and churches in these neighborhoods, what they will often do is they will create barricades in the in the roads leading their leading their neighborhoods, so vehicles can't enter. And then they'll post usually teenagers with AR-15s or fully automatic weapons. And in order to enter the neighborhoods, you have to pass under the under the watch of, of them. So they decide who lives where, who can hold a party on the street, or they totally control those neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And then usually they have a, when I was there at least, they would have a table set up that would have three to four or five cardboard boxes full of drugs and prepackaged packages of cocaine or marijuana. And they would have gang members with, once again, enormous weapons and bags full of cash. And people would line up to buy the drugs as if they were buying an apple in the supermarket. You could see people holding bags of cocaine up and looking at them and they would make the transactions in the open. And so the gang really has to control the whole neighborhood for that sort of system to work. And in the same way, the, the gangs control parts of the prison. And uh, so looking at the prisons, you learn a little bit about what's going on in the rest of Brazil as well. Mm. And I, I remember reading a report when, when the government wants to have a go at cleaning out the favelas, they turn up in, with tanks. Yes. And that, was, that happened when I was there. And it felt like it was a, there was one day where they were coming in. And the streets were, it was a Saturday, the streets were empty. There was, there was two of us on a bus and the other person on his cell phone was, you know, telling his mother, I'm coming home. Don't, you know, don't worry. But it, it felt like a, a war zone. And then if you look at the uh, homicide rates or the rates of, and police violence, it also looks like a, like a civil war. And so it does have that aspect to it. I think you described the people in the favelas and in, in the prisons as, as Brazil's killable people. Yeah, I did. Uh, and this, I, um, I was looking at the homicide rates and uh, I, I didn't think I was looking at it right. I thought I had to been misinterpreting this or something like that. But there was a, a kind of a group of people in the same group that goes into prison that suffers you know, tremendous rates of violence, violence that you don't see in many other parts of the world. And that's, and there simply hasn't been that sort of a, a reaction from the the people living there or from the country kind of saying that, you know, this is not right, or how can we, how can we tolerate this? And so once again, it's the same group that uh, almost all of these murders are happening within certain parts of Rio. And so in the same places where the Pentecostal church is the strongest. And so the people who are going to prison and the people who are being killed, um, the Pentecostal church tends to resonate most strongly in those areas. And so that's why I kind of talked about Pentecostalism as the faith of the killable people. Mm. And so I think of a pastor, Marcio, who I, who I got to know, he uh, grew up in a, horrible situation kind of abandoned when he was young um was in into drugs as a 13 year old joined the gangs right away and they kind of embraced him and was out there with his weapon selling drugs got to prison when i think he was 19 years old made a conversion inside of prison joined the prison church got out 
stuck it with it for a little while, but then actually got back with the gangs and killed somebody. Hmm. So if you would have looked five, I guess three years after his initial conversion, you would say, well, that didn't work at all. He didn't stick hmm. with it. But a second time through prison, he had a, what he said, a kind of a deeper understanding and made a deeper commitment. And now he's been a pastor of a church and a real leader in one of the worst parts of Rio for the last 10 years. And so looking 15 years out, all of a sudden this person who was uh, you know, public enemy number one had part of a gang, actively sold drugs, was a violent person, has now been someone completely different because of a conversion experience inside of prison. And there are really countless of uh, conversion stories. And I saw people give their lives to God. And what I thought initially was I was, um, you see it enough. And how do you prove your conversion, especially inside of prison when it's a very emotional time? You're usually coming through the worst part of your life or have just done the worst thing you've ever done. Certainly, um, and you're scared to death of the people around you converting seems like a good idea, but inside of prison, what people really look at is how you act. Uh, they, they can see your day-to-day behavior 24 hours a day because you're inside of prison. It's very difficult to live one way during the church service in a different way throughout the rest of the week. And so what I saw is people's lives change and then, but their fellow inmates look to see as you act, your daily actions change. Mm. Do you stop doing drugs? Do you stop, doing all of these things that you did beforehand. And that is kind of the, the currency or proof of transformation inside of, inside of prison. So it's not just, I've had this, you know, emotional, powerful, they have had emotional, powerful experiences, but in prison, what counts is does your life change? Yes. Because is it true if you leave the gang but you're faking a conversion, they'll come after you. Mm-hmm. So the gang dominates the prison and they're the ones who control everything. But the gang says, if you make a conversion and you want to join the 10 or 15% of inmates who live in the prison church, we'll let you go. In some cases, the church has to pay off a debt uh, that the person might own, or in some cases the gang says, we'll set you free. But then they watch and they watch how you act. And, uh, you know, the gang doesn't want to lose face either. Either, um, But the, with the gang, they don't, they don't give people a, uh, you know, a theological test or things mm-hmm. to see if the theolog- theology all works out. They watch, are you, do you act differently? Do you attend all the church services? Do you stop doing drugs? Do you stop using prostitutes? That is a, thing inside of prison do you does the way you speak change and so there's all sorts of these uh be behaviors that are very visible and that converts are expected to uphold and so in some ways it's a very legalistic system because it does really well that's not the only emphasis but to those to the unbelievers on the outside looking if they want to verify that this person had a genuine change in their life, they watch how they act and watch how they treat others and watch how they spend their money and watch how they uh, speak with other inmates. And you, you said that um, the prison churches 
take on some of the characteristics of, of the gangs. What, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, first of all, it's, um, these churches are started by inmates. And so these aren't branches of prison ministries or they're not uh, tied to any other church on the outside. And so it would be very unlikely for a, a, a church on the outside to say, let's start a prison gang, but a religious one. Mm. But when the inmates started, it kind of makes sense. And it makes sense because they live together. And when they have their services, if you're part of the church, if one member goes, everybody goes. And when they go to visiting time, the church all goes at one time. And uh, if, for example, if, if there's a person who doesn't have a visitor, the church is someone must take them into their own visiting circle and share the cake or the bottle of Coca-Cola or whatever it is uh, with them. And so it has this gang feel. And initially in the 80s, the, the gang, the Commando Vermelho, which was part of the recent prison riot just last week, um, started in Rio. And all of a sudden in the 80s, a number of inmates started to call themselves, instead of the Commando Vermelho, which means Red Command, they called themselves the Commando de Cristo, or Christ Command. So they actually used the name from the gang to start their own church. Mm -hmm. And then they actually wore suits and ties inside of church, inside of the prison, all day. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden you had these this band of inmates wearing suits and, you know, ill-fitting suits and ties inside of 110-degree prison. But that's where it started. And then as it's grown... Because the gangs also have their identifying clothing as well. Is that yes. right? Mm. Mm -hmm. And then also the members are coming from gang life. And so these gangs, they provide a lot for, for not only inmates, but people living in favelas. They provide an identity, a belonging, especially for people who are pushed out of a lot of other parts of the city and society. The gang gives you a reason and a, uh, a group to belong to. And so, and the sort of charismatic leadership that a gang leader has really is conducive to, to Pentecostalism. And it's no, it's no surprise that someone who rises in the gang and has that sort of charisma and leadership ability also can make for a great pastor. Mm -hmm. And in Pentecostalism, you don't have to go through this, all the formal seminaries and graduations. You need enough people to call you pastor and then you're pastor. And mm -hmm. so that's sort of, uh, it emphasizes a different sort of leadership ability than a lot of the other churches do. And so some of the men that I saw that were really strong Christian leaders would have never got through a systematic theology class, for example, because they don't have the whatever the formal educational background, but they know how to preach and they know how to communicate and they know how to lead their peers. And many of them come from gang backgrounds. And so this idea of having uh, this idea of their church looking like a gang makes sense in that place. And, I, and it also provides kind of a sense of dignity to the people in it that this is our church i heard this a lot that this is our church we're proud of it and it's a different sort of ownership that the men had for their church than it would be if they were just participating in another church's ministry or in an outsider ministry because a lot of pastors visited but they were 
kind of viewed as supplemental or or to help out the 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 real ministry that was going on and that was when no one else was there that happened the other 23 hours a day when the people who were uh they're living together in community and that's where the real work ha- happened and that is difficult for someone from the outside to to do dignity. so it, the the criminals in rio are really the the considered the lowest of the low. I mean, they're often considered, this is the reason our city doesn't work. This is why we're scared to go outside. And so when you see images of Brazil of kind of the, you know, poor children in the favelas, well, they garner a lot of sympathy, but not the people who are holding knives to people's throat or shooting Mm -hmm. up the neighborhood. And so um, I think that's one of the reasons the high murder level is tolerated and the horrible conditions in the prisons. But the Pentecostal pastors, the one that I saw, really treated people as if their lives mattered. Um, I saw this in a few ways. One was the way they spoke to people who were actively involved in the gangs. That um, this message again that you have worth, that God loves you, what you're doing now, even though you're hated by people on the outside, that uh, that God loves you. And I saw you know, a number of times pastors put their hands, hands on the heads of, of gang members as they mm-hmm. held uh, suitcases full of cash or had automatic weapons on their shoulders and, you know, gold dripping down from their ears and wrists. This is out, out, I think, outside the prison yes, in the yeah. favela. Yeah. Outside of, outside of prison. And then inside of, inside of prison, the fact that they were there visiting, that they said, it's worth it for me to, you know, go out of my way and to come into these awful conditions mm-hmm. to visit you and to take messages back to your family mm-hmm. or to bring a bag of rice and beans and chicken to people's families who are suffering. And uh, that really, and I think that's the reason, one of the reasons why Pentecostals are so respected in the poor areas and especially inside of prison is because they, uh, address some of these real needs and that speaks, um, you know, very loudly to inside of prison. And I, I was moved by one of the stories of some um, Pentecostals in, in the favela moving amongst the gang members with their, you know, weapons and the like and their drugs and their money and offering prayer. Mm-hmm. And and the, the, um, the gang members treating them with respect, bowing their heads, receiving prayer, um, and so this is going on outside, you know, uh, in in the encounters with the gangs. Yeah. So one thing that I saw is I, I explained the way they sell drugs. They have kind of this open air drug market, and when the if a pastor wants to come in who has permission um, and do a revival or preach or something like that, or do some sort of prayer ministry, they will move that drug spot into a different place so as not to uh, be disrespectful. And I even saw cases where the gang leaders would command their members to bring in plastic chairs and help set up for the church to have, um, to have some, to have a, a, a space there. And so there is that respect uh, that goes on in these areas outside of prison and inside of prison. The one thing I would say though, is that the what the Pentecostals don't try to do is try to they don't they don't go for a regime change, hmm. and so while the Pentecostals may not uh, 
you know, call the gang leaders filthy animals that deserve to die, they also don't necessarily question that the, the legitimacy of their presence in these neighborhoods. And I think most people would say that the gangs have a overall a tremendously negative impact mm. on these places. But what I didn't see is, is pastors or Pentecostal groups uniting to try to force the gangs out, mm. both inside of prison and in the neighborhoods. And so maybe if they were trying to do that, you might see a different relationship. Yeah. But what I saw in Brazil was really a, uh, a mutual respect one for the other. And um, kind of a sad parent is even though that the, the Pentecostals were actively trying to reduce the number of gang members, the gang still treated them with respect and said, and had this clause that if you leave the gang to join the church, then we don't touch you. So. And so what characterizes Pentecostalism in in the favelas and in the prisons where you said, I think 10 or 15% have turned and believed. They live in community. So they live together in the same, inside a prison. Um, you're, you're living with the people that you go to church with. Um, there's a few other things. The, the music is very important. And so where I grew up in my own kind of church history and things like that, we, whether I realized it or not, the, the sermon is really treated as kind of the meat of the service. Mm -hmm. And the songs are almost kind of optional. You know, if you have to miss mm -hmm. something, you can show up a little late and you haven't, you know, it's just getting warmed up. But the sermon, you know, kind of the intellectual teaching part was the, was the meat of it. And what I saw in the church services inside of prison is that a lot of the theological teaching and healing and message of Christ came through in the singing. And uh, I saw it happen very consistently through not to say the sermon wasn't important or said, but the, the singing really did something inside of prison that I hadn't seen in other places. And I think that's true in other Pentecostal churches as well. And um, not professional singing by any means, but kind of a full, you know, participation. Um, and then also this, uh, this sense of it's, it was led by the people from the neighborhood, or for, in this case, from the actual cell blocks. And so these, it wasn't led by foreign missionaries or even by seminary trained professionals. It was led by people who lived down the block and who in many ways are going through some of the same hardships or difficulties um, there. And so inside of prison, you don't have nearly the sort of scandals around, uh, um, you know, celebrity pastors or prosperity, mm -hmm. promises of prosperity, theology, and things like that. A lot of those uh, more um, controversial aspects of Pentecostalism kind of disappear once you get inside of prison and there's more immediate um, needs. And, but there is money inside of prison. I mean, the, the inmates, they, they take up offerings um, from what they have and they, spend it in certain ways and they buy soap and socks and toothbrushes for people who don't have anything. Um, in one case I saw the church pooled some money to buy a bus ticket for someone else's mother to visit them and things like that. And so uh, they have a pastor, assistant pastor, a secretary, a treasurer, a worship leader and things like that. So all the trappings and some of the structure of a Pentecostal church, but it is, 
translated or kind of owned and, and recreated in a different way that fits the prison setting. Mm. Now, you did this study as an academic sociologist, mm-hmm. but just as a personally, how, how did the experience and, and of being in the prisons, of, of seeing what was going on there, how did it change you? Well, uh, I'm really grateful for having the chance to spend that much time in prison because I feel like I was able to get a, uh, a glimpse of Christ that I would not have otherwise had. And so I think what I, I think there's something to this that people, you know, kind of on the edges of society in, in prison who have had their hopes and dreams and freedom and dignity and all those sorts of things taken from them. And they no longer have anything left to hold on to except for Jesus that they can hold on sometime with a, in a way that's difficult to see on the outside. And um, I was in a unique position because I wasn't there to preach. I wasn't there to teach. I wasn't there to even help out. I was kind of observing what they were doing. And I really, um, I thought I saw what I thought God moved in miraculous ways. And I saw people who are mostly considered good for nothing doing profound, compelling things inside of prison and living in a way that I thought was really admirable. And I couldn't imagine living in such emotional or physical hardship, but I saw people doing it and they were drawing on a, drawing on God with, to, for a strength to not only, to not only make it, but kind of live with dignity. Visit movements.net to find out more about Andrew's book, If I Give You My Soul, and the documentary that's been produced by him and others about movements behind bars in Brazil. And of course, it always helps if you leave a review or uh, spread the word via social media about the Movements Podcast. I'm Steve Addison. Thanks for listening.